American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Uh, a couple caveats. First one is a macro caveat, um, and that is uh, thinking about uh, what Greg said about the um, sequence of history. I increasingly subscribe to Henry Adams' uh, aphorism, if you will, about history being chaos and that, uh, or, or I should say the chronicle of man being chaos and that history is the construct that humans place on it in order to understand it. Um, and I think Reconstruction is a good example of that. Uh, we got some insight into the, the chaos of Reconstruction, the conflict of Reconstruction. Um, on a more micro level, cartoons uh, tend not to portray the subtleties of history. And some of that is because of the way historians use cartoons, and I'm guilty of this too, uh, in order to make them uh, relevant as illustrative uh, material, we tend to take a highlight and use it to say, see, this is how they felt about X, or this is how they felt about Y. That in itself is misleading when we recognize the diversity of opinion. Um, so we need to keep in mind that the, uh, the cartoons represent a single sensibility and we should resist the idea um, that it is uh, widely emblematic of anything, okay? Then we have to step back even further and recognize that they take place in the context of a publishing world, which, has, which limits it even more in terms of its uh, reach. Uh, there were very few, quote unquote, radical, uh, radically sensitive publishing houses in New York. They tended to operate in the mainstream for obvious reasons, commercial. And uh, the, everyone else was outliers. So you have this small group of people in New York City within a few blocks of each other uh, creating the journalistic media for the country. And these newspapers and magazines that come out of New York tend to share a very similar sensibility. You don't have a Texas editor editing the New York Tribune. I mean a Texas citizen editing the New York Tribune. So they all, there is a, a, a whiteness, a likeness about them. So we need to be reminded of that as well. Um, the thing about cartoons is uh, in a presentation like this that we have to be careful of too is that I will be showing maybe the fifth, the culminating cartoon in a series of cartoons about a single issue. But because we're covering, I'm covering 12 years here, um, we need to move rapidly from issue to issue. So I've chosen emblematic cartoons, like I said, historians are guilty of, and it doesn't uh, it represents the thinking at that moment, and it doesn't represent what came before it, the development of that sensibility necessarily, um, or 
perhaps how the cartoonist changed his opinion later. Um, and so you can trace cartooning in various ways. You can do it biographically, for instance, by just seeing how one artist evolved. And even then you have to be careful because is this the artist's opinion or is this the publication's opinion and is the artist doing the bidding uh, of the publisher? Um, but that's one narrative. And another one is to look at discrete events. And this is what I'm doing. I'm hitting some high points in Reconstruction and we'll show cartoons that uh, exemplify at least one corpus of opinion around this issue. Um, so those are the those are the warnings and the you know the the notion that we need to be sensitive to the larger context. And then I need to say just in respect for everyone's sensibilities, I know we're all seasoned historians here, but you know this lecture is rated R for racist images and language and you're probably I don't know what you've seen in the last 10 days but I suspect this is going to be the most appalling stuff you see all week. And so I apologize in one sense for that, uh, because you know Reconstruction was an era when the racist sentiments of white America were at their most exposed, because these issues were central to the discussion. You know, so much of the uh, race relations in America uh, subside from mainstream discussion throughout our history. But this is where it's at its rawest. So many of these images are patently offensive to the modern eye. But they're worthy of study, not only because of what they reveal about America's age-old racist DNA, but it also helps us understand these, the sensibilities that we'll see displayed today. It helps us understand why a Reconstruction failed. At the center of Reconstruction, as it played out in political cartoons, was Thomas Nast, the great Harper's Weekly cartoonist. As a young man in his early 20s, he played an important role as a union morale booster during the war, drawing the masterful cartoons in support of the beleaguered union troops and their families at home. I'm sure you're all familiar with them. You may have even seen some uh, earlier in the session. He's justly celebrated for this work. But I believe the service he rendered in the cause of Reconstruction was far greater. After all, Nass cartoons, Civil War cartoons, echoed the sentiments of the Union majority. In contrast, Nass Reconstruction cartoons increasingly represented a minority opinion. In fact, his continued dedication to the cause of the freedmen, long after it was popular to do so, damaged his own preeminence and I would suggest irreparably. So no one of any prominence, now I'm talking outside of political cartoons, no one of such prominence in America, no other single person played a more important role or more sustained role in advocating for the cause of the freedmen than did Nast. In his position of privilege as a cartoonist for the most influential weekly in the country, he played this part as vociferously as anyone else, be it Thaddeus Stevens, Benjamin Wade, Charles Sumner, William Lloyd Garrison, or Wendell Phillips. And he continued it as long, as long after all of the other radical Republicans had either died or become marginalized. 
over and over again, and increasingly alone, Nass confronted America with the monstrous injustices being committed in the South. Because his work constitutes such an important legacy in the history of Reconstruction, it will form the backbone of this talk, with dissenters on the right being presented along the way for contrast. Okay, we begin with Lincoln's assassination. And as Greg pointed out, we've got these subtleties working um, in uh, the American political system of what do we do now, where do we go, and uh, Harper's Weekly and NAST are initially responsive to Johnson, like uh, the vast majority of Republicans, and think, well, maybe this is okay, maybe this is a good thing. Um, but NAST is already troubled during the Johnson administration about the um, increasing willingness on the administration's part to, to re-enfranchise Confederate soldiers and to not place as much emphasis on the, the freedmen. So here we have, it says, um, pardon. Columbia's asking, shall I trust these men laying down their arms in front of her? And then the other half of the cartoon where she has her hand very uh, on the shoulder of a uh, black soldier, Union soldier, and not and a franchise, and not this man. So Nast in uh, 65 is already raising the question and making a duality here. You know, uh, there's, there's this march to uh, uh, bring uh, white traders, in his opinion, back into the uh, uh, American body politic. But when are we going to resolve this issue? And uh, Nast is a very smart cartoonist, too. He didn't just portray a black man. He wanted to make the more popular uh, uh, argument for the black soldier. You know, how can we possibly forget his sacrifice? Uh, and then the, you know, the added uh, loss of leg, you know, symbolizing his sacrifice. Um, but, you know, within a relatively short time, radical Republicans become very dissatisfied with the imbalance of Johnson's political vision and uh, how his uh, desire, it seems, to uh, restore uh, white governments at the um, risk of, or I should say, at the um, with blacks paying the price for this. So this is this was done uh, almost a year later after the cartoon I just showed you, and this says Andrew Johnson's Reconstruction and how it works. Okay, so now we've got a full blown. Uh, radical response to the Johnson administration. And this is during the 1866 election cycle. You've got the Memphis riots up here where blacks, dozens of blacks are killed. You've got the Louisiana massacre where dozens of blacks are killed as the uh, motif. Um, and he, he harkens back to Southern rights as they were where slaves are being whipped and setting up this contrast of, so, you know, 
have we made much progress? Pardon to rebels. Now it's become, he's not just asking the question, now he's making it personal with Johnson. Okay, we're pardoning rebels. Victory uh, votes. What's, let me get that. Uh, votes to union men. This is the contrast. And he's, he's specifically saying, he's, he's specifically applying there union black men, men who supported the union. And these are in uh, contrast to each other. Um, Johnson here, the, the black soldier, is saying, dost thou mock me? And Iago, you know, this Shakespearean tragedy, there's still, judgment is being placed on Johnson, but he's not, he doesn't, he's not evil incarnate yet. He'll, and he'll get there fairly quickly. But Nast is uh, much more dramatically than the last cartoon. He's saying there's real, there's a real problem here, and um, uh, we are facing, you know, a serious uh, political question that everyone needs to weigh in on. So this is one of his election cartoons. Um, the most egregious example of this, uh, the fight that occurred in 1866, in my opinion, or certainly graphically, occurred in Pennsylvania in the governor's election. Hester Clymer was a Southern, I'm sorry, a Pennsylvania career Democrat who had opposed Lincoln's war measures in the Pennsylvania House. He was running for governor as a Democrat. Uh, Kearney, sorry, Gary uh, was running as the Republican candidate, and he had a fascinating career. He was the first mayor of San Francisco. He was the territorial governor of Kansas during Bloody Kansas, and uh, he had been in the Union Army, and now he was running uh, as a radical Republican for the governorship of Pennsylvania. This is a cartoon that appeared in a New York periodical in March of 66, before the campaign and the swing around the circle got underway. But here we have, this sort of sets up the dynamic. This is at around the same time that the Freedmen's Bureau is being renewed after a year, um, and Congress votes to renew it. Johnson vetoes the bill, they pass it over, his veto. But this is a classic portrayal of northern, of a certain sector of northern sentiment and certainly Southern sentiment about what the Freedmen Bureau represented. We have an idle uh, black man done in caricature, and it says, freedom and no work, the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, apathy, idleness, insolence, by the sweat of thy brow thou shalt earn their bread. So the white man's working, the black man is lazy. You know, the this is where Greg's uh, uh, reconstruction subtlety goes out the window. We're, uh, we, we're not confronting the challenges that black men are facing in the South. You know, forget about 40 acres and a mule. This is simply this idea that uh, this is basically an 1860s version of the welfare queen. You know, this idea that blacks are taking advantage of the system and whites are paying for it. This, but it's interesting, the way this 
is worded, a few words of advice to the sentimental and poetical Nego. Go to work and transplant your castles from the air to earth before white labor comes and displaces you. Um, yes, this is a racist image, but uh, the uh, Climber campaign takes this image and really dials it up a notch. This is a poster that they produced based on the image. Um, and the, whatever subtlety there was in that last image is now gone, okay? And they even add some more stuff. This says white women, white sugar, you know, there's, so now we get the, the, the classically racist overtone. We, we bring in another uh, white man working over here. The white man must work to keep his children, you know. Uh, and then, you know, we're laden with statistics about how much the Freedmen's Bureau costs. And this was a poster that was distributed in Pennsylvania. It, for 1864 and 65, the Freedmen's Bureau cost the taxpayers of the nation at least $25 million. Uh, in 66, the share of taxpayers of Pennsylvania will be about $1 million. Gary is for the Freedmen's Bureau. Clymer is opposed to it. They're making a very specific argument. This is a, this is a great representation uh, <laughs> laid bare of the 1866 elections, what was going on there in uh, you know, the polarity of politics. And uh, the Clymer campaign wasn't satisfied with just this type of approach. They also distributed cards uh, which were common in the 1860s in American politics, but it was it was a short period of era, but a uh, short period in which this uh, had dominance. Radical love for the soldier. The black soldier says, Massa, I come for my extra bounty of $300, what Congress gives me. Hey, Massa, all right, my brave man, here's your money. Then the, the white soldier comes off. I came for my extra bounty of $100 of paymaster says, I'm very sorry, but Congress had made no appropriation for you. So here's, again, racist, uh, pitting the races against each other. Uh, this is uh, also hyperbole, you know. I mean, this, is, this really didn't happen. Bounties were uh, awarded on length of service, and there may have been incidents where uh, some white soldiers weren't paid, but the idea that the federal government was a, uh, you know, a, a mill of largesse toward the, the, the former black soldier and turned a cold shoulder to the white soldier is just uh, something that the Clymer campaign chose to uh, exploit. Now this is, this is even better or worse Miscegenation allowed by Congress. Okay, so uh, they're they're going even further and saying this: the radical Republicans know no limit. And so he says, marriage is a contract. I must do this or be fine. Again, some interesting uh, uh, echoes in today's political sphere. Massa, you must marry us. The the law says so. Um, so. This is what they believed the Civil Rights Bill was all about, you know, miscegenation. And again, they're, they're driving this thing home. Congress passed it over the president's veto. Gary's for it. The U.S. senators from Pennsylvania were for it. Every congressman voted for the bill. 
But if Clymer had his say, this wouldn't happen. Um, Nass did a final salvo just before the election, sorry, where, again, he amps it up too. How he will look and what he will do, King Andrew, Andy the First. He's got radical Republicans in line to be beheaded. Uh, long live King Andy. So, you know, they were talking about the, uh, Greg was talking about the, years, the concentration of power in the executive branch. This was seen as a, you know, uh, unprecedented step, uh, step on Johnson's part. And uh, uh, Nast is censuring it. Liberty is in chains. Um, he's trying to draw the issue very clearly. You vote for Johnson, and tyranny will be the result. So you pays your taxes, you takes your choice. Um, this cartoon, which is often thought to have appeared during the Memphis riots, where uh, mainly Irish whites uh, who were in law enforcement and in city government turned on black citizens there and, and took out, uh, killed 30 or 40 uh, black uh, uh, Memphis uh, citizens. Um, this is, was actually issued when the report, the congressional investigation came through, and which was happened a, almost a year after the event, but it is, uh, it is cited um, because it, it references, I'm sorry, the Innocents of New Orleans. Uh, uh, this was the report on what happened in, the, in New Orleans when black marchers were fired upon by uh, white Southerners who resented their uh, impudence. Um, so we've got Johnson as in like an old Roman Colosseum approving of this, uh, this slaughter. You've got uh, Grant and Sheridan, you know, Grant is, looks like he's going to pull his weapon. He's pretty much had enough of this. So uh, Nast is recognizing, even though Grant is part of the administration, that he plays a very um, tortured role in uh, being loyal to his president. Uh, a great cartoon, very dramatic, very memorable. You see it over and over again. Uh, in historical texts because uh, it crystallizes this feeling of radical Republican moral outrage at the tepid response of the Johnson administration to atrocities occurring in the South. Well, the election of 66, it is a triumph for the Republicans. And so they come in and they pass the military bill and other matters. Um, Nast uh, as the military bill is under consideration, uh, does this cartoon uh, castigating Southern justice. It's busy, it doesn't have the same punch as the other one, but it's still very rewarding. We have, uh, this is Southern justice with the uh, Yankee and the nigger in the uh, scale of justice being far outweighed by the Democratic Southerner and the CSA. Uh, so she's got a Medusa-like uh, head with uh, snakes. 
So here we have, and, and NAS highlights individual instances of a terror, black, a terror against black citizens. So here's a trial in the South. We see a, a dead black man uh, in the courtroom. And if uh, the gentleman who perpetrated the crime is a Southern gentleman, then it's just a good joke, okay? And everyone's having a fine laugh. But if he was a Union man or a freedman, uh, Nast is pulling no punches, and he's trying to put his weight behind the, uh, the radical Republicans in Congress to move this issue forward and to uh, bring some clarity in an area that had been uh, uh, losing, uh, losing that clarity because of the way the Johnson administration was uh, enforcing laws in the South. Okay, now there were other cartoonists working at the time. Uh, they didn't have the same consistency. One of the brilliant aspects of Nass work is he understood repetitive imaging. He understood how to build on images. And uh, uh, his audience sort of waited for the next installment. No other cartoonist of this period had the same personal identity that Nass did, and they didn't have the same forum that Nass did. So these, the, uh, the other voices that we're going to see um, never had the influence that Nass did. But almost to a man, uh, they were oppositional to the radical Republicans. Nass is really the lone voice in the national media that is continuing to advance the radical Republican philosophy. This is a fairly lighthearted cartoon under the circumstances. It doesn't really express an opinion so much as just portray um, the incident. Here is uh, the new Don Quixote, pronounced by Spanish scholars Don Quixote, and it has Andrew Johnson on his uh, donkey of my policy being upset when he goes toward the military, when he tries to uh, tackle the windmill of military reconstruction. Um, so he's brought down. This is, um, you know, like I said, a fairly lighthearted cartoon um, portraying uh, the headlines. And it's, it's relatively unusual, too, because the period was so polarizing that most cartoonists fell rather dramatically on one side of the fence or the other. Um, and this was, this next cartoon was quite common. Uh, this was the common representation of the black man in this period in cartoon. We saw those images earlier in the talk where you have black statesmen sitting, you know, the bust of black statesmen and uh, and you see the elderly black man casting his first vote. Uh, Harper's Weekly tried to do, uh, made a concerted effort to portray the black man with dignity. This was not the case in the rest of the press. And most cartoonists loved to uh, employ over-the-top stereotypes. And you can see this most clearly when this is supposed to be Frederick Douglass. You know, a lion of a figure, a man of incredible personal dignity. And he's portrayed 
in the, you know, the classic racist stereotype. And here we have, this is called Othello's Occupation Gone. This appeared in 67. Uh, Thaddeus Stevens says, Thaddeus Stevens says, why, what's the matter, Sambo? And Douglas, whose uh, name is uh, misspelled, says, oh golly, Massa Stevens, here go. That emperor of the Brazils has abolished slavery. Golly, that's too bad. That's knocked our lecturing into a cocked hat. Bobolitions played out. Dinah and I can't starve. I'm going to whitewash. And boys, if you take my advice, you'll go to boot blacking. First rate trade, I guess. These are the other, you know, this is Horace Green. Henry Ward Beecher. Uh, this is Thaddeus Stevens. That's Wendell Phillips. There's Horace Greeley. Um, really a gratuitous racist cartoon because the idea that um, the notion, it's almost, they're almost positing this notion that now that Brazil has abolished slavery, there's no more need to talk about it, which is foolish uh, on, on a number of levels. But it's really, this, is, this cartoon is gratuitous because it's just an effort to denigrate the leading black American in this country. And it doesn't have any real legitimate context. Um, Harper's Weekly um, published cartoons by other people. This was a small cartoon that appeared in the back of the magazine. And it portrayed uh, Johnson in the role of Samson Agonistes. Uh, pulling down the temple. Um, this had to be done with some irony because uh, even though Harper's Weekly would have embraced the idea that Johnson was a destructive force, I'm not sure the parallel they would the parallel uh, would continue for Harper's Weekly with the idea that he'd have the strength to do it. They certainly didn't want to assert that, but they do show him as a destroyer. Um, and um, then uh, when uh, impeachment fails, we've got this cartoon called Ben Wade's Nightmare. Ben, Wade was the Speaker of the House and uh, uh, was the next in line for the presidency uh, if Johnson had been impeached because there was no vice president. <laughs> ben Wade's Nightmare after impeachment was declared dead it's really a, a marvelous cartoon, as cartoon goes, with the little dancing. You know, this is uh, the radical Republicans conjuring up the KKK as dancing skeletons. Uh, we've got knives and uh, assassins, and these are black men asking for jobs. Um, and Andrew Johnson cutting off Ben Wade's head. Um, it's uh, just... <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> um, this uh, appeared in the Budget of Fun, which was Frank Leslie's publication. He didn't. Frank Leslie had a parallel periodical to Harper's Weekly called the Illustrated News, but he rarely ran cartoons in that in the 1860s, and he tended to put his political cartoonists into his humor magazine. So it had a different, a less respectable context than NAS work did at Harper's Weekly, and it also had, the budget of fun had a much smaller circulation than 
certainly than Harper's Weekly, but even Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper. But this is a classic depiction of, again, the, uh, the white supremacist fear. It's called the juggernaut, his high priests, and his victims. The white man has no rights which a black man need respect. So we've got this ugly uh, carriage of uh, caricatured uh, African Americans with a large bust in front and being pulled by uh, Schuyler Koufax, uh, uh, again, Thaddeus Stevens. This escapes me, Ben Butler, and um, trampling on white men. We, we need to, the, the imputation here is white Southerners, of course, because they're the ones most uh, affected by this. But, you know, an extraordinary cartoon uh, in, in how it reflects a, a certain sensibility. You know, we think today, how concerned we are about uh, being respectful in public dialogue. And, uh, you know, there was never a whisper. Nass got more blowback for his cartoons than, than these types of ugly racist uh, images did in the national press. Oh, and one of the arguments during the election of 1868, which this cartoon was a part of, was that the Republicans really only cared about votes and advancing their power, and that was behind their interest in uh, black suffrage, that it was entirely cynical. And so we've got you know, piles of white men uh, under the burden of Reconstruction and then we've got Negro suffrage uh, adding this layer of African Americans. And then you've got these calculating politicians uh, climbing up this mountain that has been created in order for them to uh, accede to national office. Nast, in contrast, tried to bring people's attention back uh, to you know, real core issues. This is a remarkable cartoon. Patience on a Monument. It shows a black soldier, once again, sitting, you know, in this resigned, dejected, but, you know, fairly angry attitude at the top of this monument that lists all of the atrocities that had been calculated against the black population. We've got the prominent Irish American, uh, and the clan over here uh, doing their uh, atrocities, committing their atrocities. And then we've got presumably his wife and two of his dead children at the bottom of the monument. A really powerful cartoon. Um, you know, in contrast to these other cartoons that we just saw, which are very sort of snide and jocular and uh, childish in a way. This, this is a noble cartoon in comparison and a striking image uh, to try and remind people what, uh, what issues were at stake. And then Nast then goes on to try and remind people about what the Democratic Party was 
So he's first he's focusing on the trials of the South, but then he's saying, but let's look at the 1868 Democratic Party. Five points Irishman, CSA, former Confederate officer, and this is uh, August Belmont, the, the leading financier of the Democratic Party, all with their feet on the black man who had held up the flag in battle. It says, quoting from the uh, Democratic platform, we regard the Reconstruction Act, so-called of Congress, as usurpation and unconstitutional, revolutionary, and void. Um, so NAST is using their own words against them and showing sort of cause and effect. And uh, Nash was very effective in the 68 campaign of trying to remind people of the elements of the Democratic Party that were secessionists, that were, that were violent, that were not worthy of restoring to power. But he understood that there was a problem, and that was this disenfranchisement happening in the South. And so he's got the black man as Samson, and Southern Dem the Southern democracy, the Democratic Party of the South, is shearing him of his power, which is suffrage. And we've got the riotous leaders of the Democratic Party, Horace, uh, Horatio Seymour, Frank Blair, and others uh, set on mayhem. Uh, and just when Samson needs his strength, he's being denied the most important thing that is available to him by uh, the Southern Democrats, another really effective cartoon. But again, the, the opposition to Nast uh, kept coming back to this idea that it was really a, the Republicans were cynical in their uh, interest in the welfare of the black man, that it wasn't, uh, it was self-promoted. Uh, uh, self road to the White House. Grant is balancing a black man on his back. And again, the black man's depicted as lazy, shiftless, will lay down the shovel and the hoe and take up the old banjo. And Grant is saying, yeah, well, that's fine. That's fine. But would you just shut up for a little while so I can get into office? Um, you know, it's a lot of times history pictures Grant as this triumphant hero of the North, but there was a significant section of the North that wasn't so uh, enamored with him and did not embrace him in the way that uh, we've often been led to believe. So Grant wins, and this is the natural cartoon to come after that. It's called Darkie Deputation. Massa Grant, we be come a long way. We elected you, and we spec something. All of them, you know, ridiculously caricatured. They're fumbling over each other. They've got their white, their whitewashing, uh, and their boot blacking uh, equipment. And uh, Grant says, "Sorry, we've given out all the offices, essentially." But. Again, this systematic 
effort to demean not only the black man, but by inference, the cause of the radical Republicans to uh, treat him with dignity. Concomitant with all of this, of course, is the rise of the Klan. This is kind of an unusual cartoon. This is by a guy named Frank Ballou, who is a, a Britisher who came to the United States. And he was a progressive, and like Nast, uh, he held uh, radical Republican views, but he didn't have a forum. Uh, and, but he slipped this one into the budget of fun, which is totally out of character with its other cartoons, where he shows the Klan as a menace, and it's called Out on Parole, Scene, a Southern Forest. The goddess of peace, commissioned by the great white-headed eagle, sent a messenger bearing an olive branch to all the denizens of the forest. But scarcely had it perched upon a limb of the Tree of Liberty than a huge paroled rattlesnake, i.e. the Confederates, whose life the eagle had saved, in other words, instead of killing them, glided up and we see what's going to happen. So uh, there was some uh, portion of the North that was concerned about the rise of these terrorist groups uh, not just Harper's Weekly, but they were a small voice. And uh, this was not, in cartoon, this was not the general attitude to the Klan. This was the general attitude to the Klan. Great cry and little wool, or the Ku Klan question. American citizen of color. They always liked to refer to black men, especially after uh, the vote after the 15th Amendment, uh, ironically, as a citizen of color. It was, you know, uh, dog whistle racism. Oh, Lord of Massa, kill him quick, or eyes a gone nigger. Wade Hampton says, don't shoot, doggone it, he won't fight anyone. Uh, but here is uh, Butler, who is leading the Klan bill, trying to shoot this little dog. Uh, so the point is, the, this whole plan thing is blown out of proportion. We don't need this, uh, this bill that Grant is asking for to control the Klan. Um, and it's just, uh, might as well be ignored. We also, we have the trope of the stolen chicken in the black man's hat. Here's another example of the same cartoon, a little less dramatically rendered. Here's a Republican carpetbagger. So in other words, now we've got someone who's intruding on the South, a do-gooder, and just sort of looking a bit at feet. What are you spanking that American citizen for? And the Madam South says, because he's a naughty pickaninny and he deserves it. The carpetbagger immediately telegraphs the North that the White League is at work committing the most horrible atrocities. Everything's exaggerated. Interesting thing was happening on Harper's Weekly that um, mirrored what was happening with uh, radical Republicans and the Republican Party generally. There was this growing disillusionment with the military rule of the South. And we see that in the culmination of Horace Greeley former Republican being nominated by the Democrats in 1872, as well as the liberal Republicans, who basically says, 
you know, we don't need these military governments anymore. Well, it was happening within uh, the world of Harper's Weekly itself. Uh, George Curtis, the uh, reformist editor who in 65 was a confirmed radical Republican and spoke uh, harshly about uh, how uh, Confederate officers needed to be punished. By the 1870s, he was moving away from this you know, retribution uh, idea, this uh, reconstruction idea. And uh, we have him here in this cartoon, published in the first uh, illustrated daily newspaper in America, of him portraying the white leaguers as angels. He wasn't saying that, but he was saying something akin to the previous cartoons of it's not that big a deal. They have a purpose to play in Southern politics. Um, the white leaguers, as you probably know, succeeded the Klan after the Klan was effectively wiped out by Grant's, uh, by the Klan bill. Um, and they served a similar function, uh, especially in Louisiana, where they were controlling votes. But it was, it was under the rubric of a sort of a citizen's reform organization. It was less uh, toxic in its presentation. And Curtis bought that. But Nass said, no, these guys are no different from what the Klan was, and we need to fight him. So this cartoon tweaks Harper's Weekly and says, Harper's Weekly on both sides of the fence. You pays your money and you takes your choice. Look on this picture and on this. There was an old party named Curtis who said, Nast, you surely will hurt us. If truer than I, your pencil you ply, this jealous old party named Curtis. There was a young party called Nast. His eye on his picture he cast and said, yes, tis better, more true to the letter, this egregious young person called Nast. Um, even in this sort of, uh, you takes your money, you takes the choice, they slip in this last little dig, this egregious young person called Nast. So they're actually siding with Curtis in this cartoon. They're saying that uh, uh, even though he looks a bit foolish, portraying the white leader as an angel, uh, they're saying Nast is too big for his britches here, you know, and, uh, and we're really tired of his harping. This is a great Nass cartoon, though, that follows up on, that is at about the same period that this cartoon appeared. Halt, this is not the way to repress corruption and to initiate the Negroes into the ways of honest and orderly government. So he's got Columbia attacking the white leaders with constitutional law at the black man who's been uh, injured, lays on the pavement. Great you know, uh, drama, again, getting out front of the issue and saying, you know, we have to uh, monitor the South. It's uh, reconstruction is still in peril. Those actually, the white leaguers occurred 74, 75, 76 in Louisiana, but I jumped ahead because they're of a piece with the Klan. So we're going to go back to the election of 1872 here this echoes the sentiment of the other cartoon with the, uh, uh, the carpetbagger coming in and chastising the, uh, the southern mother. Carpetbagger's catechism. Grant is the schoolmaster. Now, niggers, 
if you don't get ye lessons by heart before election, you're all goners. If you'll only do like I tell you, you'll all get offices, like the general's relations. 1872, Grant is running for re-election. There's uh, nepotism charges against Grant, so this is tweaking that. But it's also, it's mainly laying the, here we've got Grant up there as an angel, really as the devil, but it's mainly playing this issue that black men are just tools of these northerners who've come in to try and control the vote in the south. Nast, of course, sees it differently. It is only a truce to regain power. He has Greeley saying, which is a quote, clasp hands over the bloody chasm. This is what he was exhorting America to do to try and put the Civil War behind us. Charles Sumner says, freely accept the hand that is offered and reach forth thine own in friendly class. So he's got uh, two former abolitionists and two former radical Republicans kind of pushing this beleaguered black man over the bodies of his wife and children to shake hands with the former Confederate officer, a Klan member, and say, join us in the Democratic Party. You know, we will we'll make everything better. Nash tries to strip it bare of the cynicism. He also, of course, adds a, an Irishman in there for good measure. This is, this is an interesting counterpoint to his patience on the monument. The white sepulcher covering the monument of infamy with his white hat and coat. He's charging Horace Greeley with whitewashing the tragedies in the South. This is uh, really on the ladder. You've got the Klan, you've got the, the counting ring, you've got all these injustices based on the foundation of slavery. And Greeley and Carl uh, Schurz down there uh, supporting the ladder, they're just trying to say, forget about all of this, you know, this is not important. Um, Curtis supported Greeley in the campaign. So it made for a very uneasy uh, situation in Harper's Weekly. Uh, Nast was too powerful to fire, uh, but he was not powerful enough to influence the rest of the magazine. So you had this weird dichotomy. Um, and Curtis, it caused enormous friction between the two because the previous year, Nast had helped to bring down uh, uh, Tweed and Curtis had been all in on that fight with him and it had been very important to the magazine it increased their circulation it made them you know a la the Washington Post and Watergate sort of a pinnacle of uh, rectitude and Curtis was coming to Nast and saying look Horace Greeley is not Tweed all right Greeley may have his faults but you're painting him with the exact same brush that you painted uh, Tweed with. And there's got to be some gray areas here. And Nass said baloney. Uh, there was no gray for Thomas Nass. He was very uh, self-righteous. And when he was on the right side of the issue, it, it's ex exhilarating. Now we move to the election of 1876. Tilden is the nominee. The same things are happening in the South. There's this outrage in uh, um, 
South Carolina, I believe it was, almost 100 blacks were killed in violence to repress the vote. Systematic vote repression, Hamburg, South Carolina. Tilden is reprising the role of Greeley, and he's saying, uh, this is a, a Nast love to use the quotes of politicians against him, uh, when uh, he was exhorting the Democratic Party to rise to the challenge of the election, he said, it is not I, but the idea of reform which I represent. In other words, I'm, uh, I'm just an agent for change. And so Nast is saying, oh, really? This is, the, the, this is how we reform the blacks in the South, and this is what you support? And again, just before the election, Nast draws this cartoon. Is this the Republican form of government? Is this protecting life, liberty, and property? Is this the equal protection of the laws? So this is 1876. We are 11 years into this struggle. And he's still saying, Jesus Christ, what's going on here? You know, this is a travesty. By now, he is virtually alone. And even though uh, Greg asserts that the fight of Reconstruction went on into the 1890s, after 1876, in American political cartoons, the fight of Reconstruction is essentially dead. And Nass turns away from the issue, too, mainly because uh, Harper's Weekly is not interested in his work that focuses on this issue anymore. They're tired of it. He uh, is so upset by Hayes's nomination as a Republican to succeed Grant, who he rarely quarreled with, and he saw Hayes as a repudiation of the Grant administration. But this, this is fascinating. He was the leading cartoonist in America. He never drew a caricature of Rutherford B. Hayes. The man was president for four years, and Nast refused to draw a picture of him. That was the height of his alienation to what happened in the election of 1876 and what, uh, what transpired after that with the supposed compromise. Um, and uh, he, he actually would leave for months at a time from Harper's Weekly. He would just say, I'm fed up. And he would, be, he would be absent from the pages of Harper's Weekly for three, four, five months, and then he'd come back because it was a good job and they were happy to have him back. But it was, he almost felt like he was in a Faustian uh, arrangement where he couldn't fully express himself uh, when he did, and they didn't like it, they wouldn't print the cartoon. So it was very frustrating for Nast. And the, the cruel irony for him was at the same time, in 1876, a magazine was launched called Puck. Joseph Kepler was the cartoonist, but he was also the co-owner. And Kepler became rich, which Nast never did, because he owned part of the magazine, and he had complete influence over the political direction of it. So this was, you know, to be crude, a Nast wet dream. You know, this is what Nast really wanted. And, but Kepler had it. Kepler was a, a nominally a Democrat. He was a German-American, and he came to America after the war. So he wasn't caught up I mean, Nast, too, was, was uh, a German-American, but he had come here at the age of two. Kepler came here as an adult. He wasn't caught up 
in the turmoil of the war, and it was easier for him to see Grant simply as a corrupt figure, which was the Democratic line uh, during Reconstruction. That he just, you know, the, all the scandals of the Grant administration uh, were anathema to uh, German Americans, generally speaking, who tended to be to vote Democratic, uh, and to Kepler in particular. So what we have is kind of the verdict of history. In 1880, Grant is running to get the nomination for the Republican Party again. Puck probably did more than anyone else to prevent him from getting that nomination. This is how they caricatured the period of Reconstruction under Grant and what happened under Hayes. People were saying, you know, Hayes is a weak man. Grant was a strong man. So uh, Puck, this was drawn by Wales, uh, Kepler's colleague, but it, it reflects Kepler's sentiments. The strong government, in quotes, 69 to 77, the South under carpetbag and military rule. The weak government, Hayes plowing under, let him alone policy, uh, plowing under military rule with the prosperity of the South as a result. Again, uh, something of a uh, wish fulfillment, but this really, for up until the 1960s, this was the standard historical trope. And it, it took, uh, you know, so for, for nearly 100 years, uh, this is how America viewed what happened, what Reconstruction meant, uh, this oppression of the South, and what the end of military rule meant. Obviously, no reference to the black man here, uh, aside from the fact that they're prosperously working alongside their, uh, their white, uh, the white plantation. Up until the 20th century, there is occasional reference to lynching and decrying lynching in the South in American political cartoons. There is occasional reference to black migration. There is occasional reference to a particular bill before Congress that, that would help uh, minimize the disenfranchising of black voters. There's no systemic attention to this issue afterwards. And you can, uh, you can find almost nothing in the cartoon literature after 1877 except for these occasional references in 80 when Puck was trying to defeat Grant and harken back to Reconstruction, to this period in history. And I think it accurately reflects the national desire for amnesia over this failure of will, uh, this uh, tragedy that we couldn't confront, and we didn't confront again for nearly 100 years. So thank you very much for your attention. I'm happy to take any questions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting to see how other cartoons have impact mass, but yeah. do you have any sense of 
Well, um, that's a good question. And of course, the black soldier with dignity, as you probably learned earlier in the session, began in about 1863 during the war when there was an effort uh, in the North to raise up a, a, a media effort to raise up the black man in stature so that he would be a credible soldier uh, and, uh, and then to celebrate some of the black victories. Nast was at the forefront of that, but there were other, you know, one of the real mind-spinning uh, anomalies in this is you remember one of the worst cartoons of the black juggernaut? That was done by of the blacks in that, that carriage with the, the grotesque black um, figure at the front of it being pulled over the bodies of white men. That was done by H.L. Stevens, who was a political cartoonist during the Civil War. He was a Democrat. He was nominally a copperhead. Uh, well, that's not really true. He tended to support the Lincoln administration, but he was a racist, so he was not comfortable with the administration's uh, uh, views of the black man. But in 1863, he did this series of cards, uh, which, again, when I said in the 1860s, there was sort of this Pokemon craze of trading cards and things. And he did this packet of 12 lithograph trading cards called The Life of a Black Soldier. And it showed him in sequence on, uh, uh, the, uh, in the field working for a slave driver, his wife being whipped and sold off by the slave driver, the black man attacking his master, then escaping through the swamps, coming to the north, gaining some nominal freedom, enlisting in the army, fighting with valor, and having him in the end triumphant with the American flag. An incredible thing in 1863. Even made me even more incredible by the fact that uh, Stevens was a racist. And you can't just say, well, he was bidding for a commercial audience. I don't believe it, because there wasn't a great commercial audience for that. The people who cared about the cause of the black man during the Civil War versus the people who cared about the Union struggle, you know, disproportionate. As far as I can tell, there's only one cartoon uh, during the 1864 campaign that portray portrays the black man heroically. And it's a remarkable cartoon, and it shows uh, uh, Jefferson Davis um, wanting to shoot the black, um, the black soldier, whereas in the second frame, the black soldier is protecting Abraham Lincoln. And it's this great dichotomy. It was done by Courier and Ives. Uh, I love it because it's an anomaly. And I also contend that since Courier and Ives was responding to the marketplace and some of their cartoons were printed in the thousands to respond to the market, I bet this cartoon had a very small uh, sales and it's reflected in its scarcity. Uh, but so there is this legacy of exalting the black soldier. Um, that just nast is the last one to perpetuate it, and then it just falls away, you know. Um, so uh, I got so caught up in the idea that I could tell you about H.L. Stevens' remarkable series that I probably didn't even answer your question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Oh, it's very. Oh, I I I, I can say that quickly. Um, uh, Harper's Weekly called itself the Journal of Civilization, and that title implied all of the uh, you know white uh, northern educated uh, 
inference. Um, they had a circulation of about 100,000, 125,000, which by current standards is minuscule, but it was a leading, if you had over 100,000 circulation, you were a massive magazine of influence. But that said, that means it went to a very select group of people. Uh, by the 1860s, the vast majority of Americans could read, but they weren't going to be spending 10 cents a week on a periodical. It, it's a uh, price point is something that some scholars should look into, into literature, because it is amazing. I mean, with the penny press, you know, those of you familiar with it in the 1830s, if you had a two cent newspaper, it was hard to sell. You had a penny newspaper, became fabulously uh, successful if you could cut your costs somehow. And the same thing with true with magazines, that a quarter of Harper's Monthly, the, uh, the more literary magazine that Harper's published was 25 cents. Give it up. Uh, you know, people were not spending that type of money for reading material that was perishable. Books at the time only cost 50 cents or a dollar. Um, so the 10 cents was a barrier for a lot of folks. And so that helped define the market. So you know you're dealing with, a, you weren't dealing really with the working class who were buying this. They might be buying penny papers, but they generally were not subscribing to 10 cent issues. During the war, more people bought publications just because of the, you know, the anxiety and the desire for news. But that slackened off uh, in terms of circu general circulation. Uh, even though there was proliferation of publications after the war, uh, circulation did not uh, uh, increase. These other magazines that I was showing you had even less of a circulation than Harper's Weekly. Some of the cartoons I showed you might have been seen by 10,000 people. So in terms of the population of the United States, actually very small, <clears throat> but they had no competition. You know, there were no uh, newspapers with daily political cartoonists because the technology wasn't there yet. So the weekly was the only place where you saw this review of the news in cartoon. Um, so that, uh, that's another caveat that I could have added at the beginning of, you know, we, uh, <clears throat> we have to be in this, this age of media saturation, we have to understand that a very small segment of the population was looking at any of this. But it was the population that cared. It was the influential uh, uh, population. It was the decision makers, the people with money. So outside of New York, Not in the illustrated press. Newspapers, of course, every city had prominent newspaper editors. But it is amazing how concentrated the uh, voice of weekly journalism was in New York City. Uh, uh, there were, there were uh, occasionally you'd see, like for instance in 1868, the reason why I had no cartoons from Nast on impeachment is he wasn't at Harper's Weekly during the impeachment trial. It's one of these things that is sort of uh, never really mentioned in the Nast corpus. He had, he had left town, he had gone to Chicago, and he was working for a paper called the Chicago Illustrated News. Um, and uh, he thought he was gonna settle in Chicago move his family out and make a home there. And then he was, and he stayed there through the convention of 68 when Grant was nominated. He actually did, he painted the curtain 
Trump would have liked this. He painted the curtain in the, uh, the wigwam uh, uh, celebrating Grant at the convention, uh, and which no pictures survive. Um, but so he wasn't even in New York. But that publication in Chicago lasted eight weeks. It was just very expensive to produce these things. Timeliness was a factor. You know, it uh, uh, Chicago didn't have. I should say, Harper's Weekly was distributed around the United States, and we have examples of, you know, a pack of 50 issues of Harper's Weekly landing on a railroad depot in Kansas, that type of thing. So we know it was distributed nationally. We know that people saw it nationally. But these, they still were primarily New York publications, and I think a significant part of their circulation was in the Northeast, the vast majority of their public of their subscribers were in the Northeast. An interesting thing happened during the Civil War. It's also it's kind of a uh, forgotten chapter. There were a few uh, New York publications that catered to Southern sensibilities in 1860, and the most obvious one were sporting magazines because horse racing was huge in the South. It was an industry in the South. They were wiped out by the Civil War because they couldn't get across uh, Confederate lines. Um, but um, you know, the South had had practically no uh, illustrated history of illustrated journalism during the Civil War. They had a pathetic uh, effort due to their the dire circumstances they were living under. Um, and even after the Civil War, you know, you. Uh, these, there's pleas by uh, regional editors, you know, support Southern literature, support Midwestern literature, support Western literature. You know, everyone talks about uh, how you're a loyal Californian or you're a loyal Midwesterner. The way you do it is by supporting our publication. Never worked. Never worked. No, she was first. So I have two sort of linked questions about representations of lynching. So as NAST is giving us, you give us some NAST images that are obviously critiquing yes. kind of violence. Um, are there are, are those Democrat the Democratic side? Is there uh, you show us the images of the Klan that are being sort of like saying the Klan is a joke? Minimized. But are there any people that are trying to justify? That's a good point. No, I haven't found cartoons that actually justify violence against black. They always sort of undermine the credibility of the claims more than no one was out there saying these uppity uh, African Americans deserved what they got. But of course, lynching wasn't as big a deal. Rioting was more the you know the mass killings during Reconstruction. Lynching became a fine art uh, later on. So as you move towards the end of the century, are, again, are, is lynching just, are people in, in this illustrated press pretend that's not happening? Large, you'll see, you'll see a reference once every couple of years to why this is, this is a terrible thing, this should okay. be stopped. But again, uh, you can question the motives, and uh, uh, it didn't happen in Puck, uh, but it, uh, it did happen in Judge, which was the Republican Party organ, but Judge was so partisan 
that you had to feel that whatever they brought up the to topic, it was self-serving, that it wasn't in the interest of uh, you know, advancing the rights of black men. It was in the interest of advancing the uh, prerogatives of the Republican Party. I'm sorry, just there, there is there was obviously the black press is doing a lot of anti-lynching. That was early 20th century. No, no, also in the, in the 1880s, 1890s. Not pictorially. Color, color American. Uh, really? Yeah, well, yeah. There, there, there's, there's a website on which you called uh, a song. So I can't remember now, but it, 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 there are a lot of reproductions. Oh, of well, that's press. news to me. It's also the daily newspaper, particularly around anti-imperialism around the Philippine War. Uh -huh. Start emphasizing McKinley's you know, wanting to liberate the Filipinos, not doing anything about the in the United States. Like the in, in the 1880s, the power base of cartooning goes crazy, you know, because the technology is such that American newspapers can now photo engrave images. And so starting in 1884, uh, more and more newspapers invest, daily newspapers invest in a cartoonist, which is what begins to uh, erode the power of these weekly uh, journals. They're not as timely anymore. Um, but the problem with that was it was also in a period before syndication. So the cartoonist would be viewed in their city but it was very rare for the cartoons to be reprinted elsewhere until uh, the move for syndication, which it's, it actually started in the 1890s, but it didn't begin to boom until the 19-teens when the dissemination of components of a variety of newspapers made it, with mainly comic strips led the way, but editorial cartoons too, now were being seen all over the place. Um, and the, the editorial cartoon in um, uh, 18, before 1888 was a very erratic, the, the editorial meaning the cartoon in a, on the editorial page of the newspaper were erratically seen even in New York. But after 88, they proliferated. And by 1900, it was said that there was no self-respecting newspaper in America, even these little you know, Sioux City Falls papers that wouldn't have their own cartoonists. Um, but so that shifts the whole, it shifts the influence of cartooning, and it shifts the, divert, it, it magnifies the diversity of voices, and I'm surprised that the, uh, the black press had the financial resources. Yeah. I am aware in the 19, early 1900s, there's a, a, there's a gentleman in, whose name escapes me, but in 1907 or 1908 was uh, crowned the first black American political cartoonist. I think what you probably saw in the 80s and 90s is there might have been someone in the art department who stepped up occasionally to draw a cartoon, but that they weren't a regular voice in the paper that way. Uh, they, there, were a few, uh, there were a few that parts were that uh, the names you need right now also. But the Color of America, for example, was an artist who had actually worked for Leslie, not as a, an employee, but contributing uh, illustrations a few times and then migrated to uh, uh, Indianapolis. Wow. So much work to be done in this area. Thank you. And it's, no, it's news to me. Because it never, it doesn't, it doesn't appear anywhere. That was the question I actually uh, wanted to pose. Okay. I wanted to 
Yeah, well, you should ask your colleague. Black cartoonists. Right, I know. I thought. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Black cartoonists. I was wondering about audience, and I realized that circulation is Yeah. But to what extent the black voice is responding to these images? Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I've gotten questions about, you know, how did the Chinese feel? How did the how did Jews feel about their portrayal. And the fact was, most of these groups were not very powerful in the body politic. And so uh, Puck would occasionally be boycotted by some group because they were offended by, and Puck would say, oh, you know, can't you take a joke? Um, uh, but they really weren't, uh, they didn't have the political power to exert, you know, uh, persistent influence. Uh, they were largely ignored and uh, and marginalized. So that's why you had to you would have had to go out to the black press to have seen any voice because no white publisher would have it wouldn't have been commercially uh, interesting to them, valuable to them. And They're catching the Irish press occasionally, and again, very crude stuff. That, that was not, right after the 1871 March riot, there's uh, there's a it's either an Irish world or it's getting the Yeah, Irish world was a great. Yeah, and, uh, they, and they have like a caricature of all the other publishers uh, for their crimes against the you know, portraying the Irish. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah, I give it somewhere. Yeah, but then that's another example of how, uh, you know, we've really just scratched the surface of a lot of graphic history and political cartoons have been used almost entirely to just illustrate points of view at particular times in American history. And if it wasn't published before, if you had to go back to a primary source, like a black newspaper, if you had to go into microfilm, it didn't happen. So if you, as a cartoon historian, if you look at these uh, anthologies that have occurred over the years, you know, Stephen Lorenz, Glorious Burden, and Roger Butterfield's American Patent, you know, these popular histories, they tended to reprint a lot of the same cartoons. And so you've got this group of about 300 or 400 fairly well-known cartoons because they were either powerful or they exemplified a, a, a salient point of view that the author wants to get across, but, you know, incredible repetition. When I did this book on the Wasp, the San Francisco magazine, we could state categorically that something like 98% of the cartoons in the book had never appeared since they originally appeared. They'd never been reprinted. And that's, there is just, we, you know, our visual knowledge of American political cartooning in published form is just a little tip of the iceberg. Yeah. 
and maybe going back to the juggernaut cartoon is a good specific of this, but the role of women and sexuality in these cartoons, I just feel like it's very much there, but I just wondered if you had done any work or if people have done work, like kind of trying to read that, yeah. that dimension of these. Uh, Josh? Where, where are we going here? Yeah, yeah. Um, it would be a fascinating study. The, uh, all I can say is my reflection on that is uh, I see them as props in the, in the argument uh, against, you know, it, your wife or daughter type of thing. And that there's no, there's no attempt to uh, actually articulate a woman's point of view. They're used, they're used purely for political purposes here, you know, to uh, drum up fear against uh, miscegenation and racial violence against uh, defenseless white women. Um, but again, women are very poorly represented in the 19th century press too. Um, their, their point of view, there was it wasn't until the 1890s that there was a female political cartoonist in the United States, and um, so we don't we don't have we have very few graphic representations of uh, a woman's perspective on these issues. Is that what you were kind of alluding to? Yeah, I think it's like women's perspective, but also the use of gender in certain kinds of ways, uh -huh. so graphic perspective <clears throat> yeah. about these issues that maybe as you're Yeah, I think it would be a fascinating uh, study to look at that. In your Kepler book, the quote you there, you have that early Kepler book when Puck is, uh, is a German publication. In, in St. Louis? Yeah, of the 15th Amendment. Yeah. And an attack based on women are now allowed to vote, but, but you know, blacks and Chinese and so on and so forth. There, there are a few anti anti 
validate the power of the visual. You can have editorials all you want, but these images which come to the fore uh, really propagate a notion, I think, more effectively than any editorial could. Um, so these are, da these, these are dangerous, you know, and they're really affirming this latent or not so latent, blatant racism in the culture. And, and I, I agree with you. I think they sort of uh, make it acceptable to start thinking this way, uh, you know, to demean all others. Nast is a funny character. I mean, I celebrate him for Reconstruction. He always portrayed the black man uh, nobly. I used to suspect him for the reasons I gave before about that he was only doing this uh, to further the Republican cause, which he was, you know, vociferous supporter of. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's fair, because he did it much longer than he needed to. He did it when it was no longer popular. And he was silenced by Harper's Weekly when he tried to bring it up again. We have evidence of that. But on the other hand, you know, he was recently nominated for the New Jersey Hall of Fame famous New Jersey, and it was defeated because Irish Catholics in the state said, no, no. And Nast, if there's one thread that runs through his work from the beginning to the end, is this really ugly, anti-Catholic, uh, anti-Irish. He returns, you know, he did a lot of it for, uh, during the, the Tweed period, you know, to try and make people think of the Democratic Party as this these outlaw thugs, Irish-American thugs. But he returns to it in the 1880s and 90s, working for an anti-immigration group, a publication called America in Chicago. And every week, he puts in these anti-Irish, anti-Catholic cartoons, which confirm that uh, those earlier cartoons were not a phase in his life. It's a consistent theme. So. You know, if you are an Irish-American in New Jersey uh, who feels offended by NAS work, it's justified. <laughs> uh, you, Nick. So I'm actually thinking uh, back on what Anna was talking about. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, the, the representation of uh, the African-American man in NAS's work, uh, coupled with the images of the wife and the children I think it does reflect an implicit uh, woman's perspective because the Freedman like, Aid Societies that were led us to be like men, but, but often driven by women, one of the biggest concerns was this idea of the attack on men. And so I think by, even though the, the woman in the image is an African American woman who is, is dead or beaten, I, I see those as being very reflective of the woman's concern The uh, uh, 
I'm sure good work has been done on who the readership was in the 19th century. We obviously know it was predominantly male. Harper's Weekly had a wider, I think, probably had a wider gender spread than other publications because it was a news magazine. But the humor magazines, I think, tended to have more of a male audience. Uh, and the Puck and Judge, which were very political in nature, it's not that women weren't political, but there was something about Puck and Judge that really appealed to sort of Democratic Party clubs and Republican Party clubs, which were, of course, would have been then men. Uh, there's, uh, in my early studies of Puck, I, I read this comment, and I didn't understand it at first. It took like a, a second to get the joke. But someone said, do you read uh, Puck or Judge? This was the, the sort of the, uh, the setup and the punchline. And the person says, no, I shaved myself, <laughs> meaning he didn't go to a barber shop. And that was where you tended to encounter it sitting out there. The people would look at it before they uh, got a haircut. Um, uh, again, setting us ourselves back into the sensibility of 19th century culture, there was a huge industry for women's publications. Most of them were not political. You know, most of them were domestic arts publications. They were very successful. Um, uh, but um, I think a Venn diagram would not show that there was a huge overlap in readership like Harper's Bazaar. Uh, published for women. There were undoubtedly men who read it because there were serialized novels in it and stuff that were not gender specific. And Harper's Weekly, undoubtedly women read it. But I think we just see, you know, a minority overlap. I just see such an, an enormous amount of reflection in the Reuben's and AIDS publications, the Reuben AIDS societies, especially with this massive push right reconstruction going down to the South and doing the education. Uh -huh. So I, Which I, was a big I, deal, yeah. It was a big deal, but I, but I also, because I never really looked at those nest images and thought about necessarily a woman's perspective until Anne said something, but, you know, even if the readership wasn't specifically female, I really feel like there was a much broader, because obviously women weren't given a lot of power control, they did run underneath these male yeah. I mean, reading some of these publications, though they were edited by men, mm -hmm. even the women were driving a lot of this content. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I just wonder if it, if it did, didn't lead over. I mean, like, yeah. I don't see this, you know, the men's driving baby by Nass or any other 19th century man to make a point specifically for women. But I definitely see that that particular theme is. Voice, it's yeah. Well, you know, now that you bring that up, I never thought of it, but it's interesting that they never portrayed, the uh, white men in the North never portrayed carpetbaggers as women, when a significant portion of the people down there were school teachers and trying to make, you know, radical change. They never did. And I think, thinking back, that probably wouldn't have been an effective way to denigrate the carpetbagger even more of having or or maybe portraying men in women's clothing i'll have to talk to them because uh, they missed an opportunity there um but that's fascinating that it, it's not reflected in the caricatures of carpetbaggers i don't know of a single cartoon that shows uh 
maybe they thought it would distract from their main point where they wanted to, to, you know, to denigrate the black primarily. But it's funny that they wouldn't ever have thought to portray, for instance, that schoolmistress, the grand schoolmaster, as they said, that would have, could have so naturally been a woman, you know? But they didn't do it. Interesting. Any other questions? Well, thanks again. It was great.